This episode is brought to you by 80,000 Hours. There's no shortage of pressing problems at this moment in history. And if you're listening to this podcast, chances are you're the kind of person who wants to have a disproportionate positive impact with their life. But how? You could volunteer your time, you could donate money to important causes, but arguably your greatest resource is your career. Your career is on average 80,000 hours long. That's 40 hours a week, 50 weeks a year for 40 years. That's how this episode's sponsor got its name. 80,000 Hours is a non-profit that aims to help people have a positive impact with their career. I first encountered 80,000 Hours all the way back in 2016 at Australia's first EAGX conference in Melbourne, EA standing for Effective Altruism. Rob Wiblin, the Director of Research for 80,000 Hours and host of the 80,000 Hours podcast and a previous guest of this podcast, was leading a career advice session at the conference. The session helped us think about how to have a high-impact career. It struck me then, as it still does today, how logical 80,000 Hours framework is and how thoughtful their advice. Their research has been developed rigorously over the past 10 years alongside academics at Oxford University, and it's a refreshing alternative to the trite, follow-your-passion kind of career advice that gets doled out today. Here's the kicker. Everything they provide is free. They're a non-profit, and their only aim is to help you find a fulfilling, high-impact career. So go to 80,000hours.org slash Joe Walker, that's 80000hours, H-O-U-R-S, and Joe spelled J-O-E, to be sent a free copy of their in-depth career guide, which aims to help you learn about what makes for a high-impact career, get new ideas for impactful paths, and make a new plan based on what you've learned and put it into action. So head to 80,000hours.org slash Joe Walker, 80,000hours.org slash Joe Walker, Take a look. Hello and welcome back to the show. This episode's guest is Raghuram Rajan, or Raghu as he is commonly called. Raghu is an Indian economist and a professor of finance at the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business. From 2003 to 2006, he was chief economist at the International Monetary Fund, and from 2013 to 2016, he was governor of the Reserve Bank of India. Raghu is one of my favorite thinkers and the author of Fault Lines, which in my opinion is one of the best accounts of the global financial crisis and Great Recession. I traveled to Chicago to record this conversation with Raghu in person. Enjoy. Raghuram Rajan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's an honor. And Raghu, I have many questions for you today, but I thought we would start with the global financial crisis and Great Recession. And I want to begin there because I think you have some views about these events that are, or at least were, very important yet underappreciated. So in 2005, you gave a famous speech at the Jackson Hole Conference at what was essentially intended to be a celebration of Alan Greenspan's tenure as chairman of the Fed. And you kind of ruined the party by presenting a paper discussing how perverse incentives in deregulated financial markets encourage tail risk in the economy and how a low interest rate environment played a role in this. In what sense, if any, did you think of that speech as making a prediction well, I was the chief economist of the IMF at that time, and uh, I had been asked to give a speech uh, 
one of the many um, that we're going to uh, talk about how wonderful Alan Greenspan's time at the Fed had been. And, you know, the debate at that time was, was he the best central bank governor in history or was he this maybe not clearly the best, but certainly way out there among the very, very best. And, um, you know, as I started writing my speech, I was uh, going to write one about all the, how all the good stuff had happened in finance. Uh, but, you know, academics, and I was still an academic um, um, at heart, um, academics tend to be contrarian. And so I said, okay, let me also think about what else I can say. And actually, as I started thinking, it became more worrying. Uh, where had all the risk gone? And how come it was all, you know, just profits in the financial sector? And uh, as you started thinking about it, uh, you started wondering, uh, you know, that uh, perhaps what we were seeing was just the tip of the iceberg. There was a lot of risk buried. And, uh, and so the paper that I wrote ultimately was saying that, look, you know, it's been a good ride, but it may be that we've taken a whole lot of tail risks uh, and uh, we haven't had the incentives to avoid them. Uh, and in fact, uh, the financial sector may in some ways have loaded on it and these will show up at some point. Hard to say when, but when they show up, it's not going to be pretty. And, um, you know, that was uh, the conclusion I reached by looking at, you know, various aspects of the, of the issue. Clearly, there were people who thought uh, I was raining on his parade. But there were, there were also others who thought, well, yes, this, there, is, there is something to this, but what can we do about it? And so uh, there's a mix of, uh, you know, anger, and, and some resignation um, because, uh, you know, some of the risks had already been taken. How do you stop it at that point? Mm. But in what sense, if any, was the speech a prediction rather than an explanation? Because there wasn't really a timing attached. There was not a timing attached. And, and it wasn't, it, it was meant to be a description of the world as I saw it, that, mm. uh, you know, that, the financial system was taking a lot of risk. And I remember leaving home and telling my wife, this, uh, this speech will either make or break me. <laughs> uh, because I had an inkling that I was saying something important. Right. Uh, but uh, I also knew that I was going out on a limb because I would look really stupid if I said, look, there are, there are these risks building and nothing actually happened. Mm. And... Interestingly, at the end of the speech, um, I went up to, you know, say hello to Chairman Greenspan, and he was obviously not pleased. What was interesting was there were two private sector people also there who were telling him, look, you've got to stop us from taking these risks. And, and what was interesting was that was the missing piece that somehow we had all convinced ourselves that the smartest guys in the room would have figured out how to manage the risks. Uh, you know, the Goldman Sachs of the world mm. uh, were, uh, you know, uh, why would they go out on a limb 
Why would they risk their firm's capital? And and what, I mean, the missing piece, which to some extent I alluded to in the paper, was distorted incentives in the financial system. And, and that led to the tail risk taking. It was the smartest guys were not immune to bad incentives. Mm. You mentioned Greenspan not being happy with the speech. I think Larry Summers also attacked it for having a, quote, basic, slightly Luddite premise. What was your model of the people who criticized the speech? I, I think what, what they, had in, uh, they had in mind was that I was standing against financial innovation. And I wanted to go back to a world where, you know, there were more moderate uh, pay packages and um, they thought I was I was trying to uh, go back to, you know, overly regulated banking. You know, you have to remember that pre-financial crisis, regulation was a bad word mm. uh, in much of, uh, of the United States. Uh, the talk was all about self-regulation, uh, about how you know uh, these uh, these financial firms would be able to govern themselves uh, completely, uh, you know uh, they didn't need the regulators sitting on their heads, and and this was the general uh, tenor that uh, don't intervene, um, free markets will figure it out, and um, you know I remember uh, this was after the Jackson Hole speech, but we were. Uh, we went to meet a bunch of risk management officers. Uh, in, this was 2007. Jackson Hole, the speech was 2005. 2007, this is, you know, as we are sort of almost at the point of the crisis, uh, which, you know, you could date to, law, uh, to August 2007. Uh, but this meeting was before then, and uh, talking to a bunch of risk management officers, and uh, I was just getting perturbed. Nobody's talking about risks here. And and so I I saw a really uh, one of the guys from uh, from a European bank uh, seemed to be really really um, sensible, and in a, in a break I caught him and I I said you know what's going on why is nobody talking about the risks that have built, be, been built up? He said you don't understand anybody who talked about risks is no longer here, <laughs> and that was that was you know I mean that was a indicator of how the system was operating. Mm. You know, the, the risk management officers who cared about risk had all been fired mm. or, or had been moved out. And, and so the incentives, uh, and that was what was worrisome. This was not, I mean, there had been so many documentaries saying the bunch of bad apples. It's not a bunch of bad apples. This is a system working as advertised. Mm. And going completely off track in the yeah. process, which is much more worrisome. Yeah. Because it's not bad people. Mm. It's good people in a bad system. Right. And the bad system is often much worse. Yeah. In a bad Nash equilibrium. Yeah. So your dad was a diplomat or spy for the Indian government. And so you traveled around a lot while you were growing up. Do you think your experience of the civil conflicts in Sri Lanka and Indonesia gave you a kind of visceral sense of tail risks that maybe some others lacked? Um, not quite. I mean, um, so my colleague Luigi, um, uh, who's from Italy. Yeah, former, I, former guest of the podcast. Uh, uh, we, we often joke that coming from uh, 
more dysfunctional economies right. uh, than the United States was at that time. We're a lot more suspicious of the system. <laughs> and that may have served us in good stead in the sense that uh, we, we looked at some of the downsides. Right. And we weren't totally convinced that uh, everything would work as advertised. Yeah. I think that's, um, I mean, to some extent, um, uh, that's the only thing that uh, that I could attribute to, you know, my upbringing, that that we were a little more uh, convinced that systems didn't always work. After the financial crisis struck, did any of the people who would criticize the speech reach out to you and say, "Hey, you got it right"? You know, the people at at conferences like Jackson Hole aren't people who do mere culpas. <laughs> but they're good people. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't, uh, look, I mean, I, I have been a regulator myself. And, and the reality is that at any point in time, there are a whole bunch of people who are screaming that the sky is going to fall down, um, you know, soon. And, and the real question is, who do you pay attention to and, um, you know, uh, almost always one of them will be right. Yeah. But, you know, there are 15 of them. Right. How do you pay attention? I mean, there's, there's always somebody writing a letter saying this firm is doing all sorts of shenanigans. Uh, and, and if you accumulated the letters which say that, you've got all the banking firms in the, in the economy who are doing something. Uh, and, and then when it turns out that one of them blows up, uh, we will go back and uh, and find out that there was a letter sent on the 14th of March, which passed by your desk, yeah. and you did nothing about it. Well, it was one of 150 letters like that, and yeah. you passed it on to the right department, and the right department said, right. okay, what do we do? So, warnings about crises are a dime a dozen. What do you take seriously uh, becomes the issue for a regulator. So, I am not perturbed that that you know people exposed will say, well, yeah, we missed it, and, and some of them did say we missed it, that, uh, and and we should have paid more attention, um, and some didn't. But that's uh, I'm I'm friends with m- many of them. By the way, Ian McFarlane, who was governor of the Reserve Bank of Australia, told me that the RBA liked your speech at the time. Well, that's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> so moving to the deep causes of the financial crisis, the idea of yours that has most influenced my thinking on the global financial crisis and Great Recession is the let the meat credit narrative, which you introduced in your book Fault Lines, which was published in 2010. I think it has very deep implications and I'd like to kind of kick the tires of this story with you, uh, as well as discuss how your thinking might have evolved since the book was first published. So firstly, could you just please briefly outline the let them make credit view. Well, there was a, a sense, um, which again, like all ideas, there's, there's an element of, of good intent and truth to it. There's a sense that if we make credit easier, if we allow people to buy houses, for example, and they can ride the house appreciation, um, that's good for their wealth, that's good for their portfolios. But it also can take, um, you know, some of their worries away, including 
worries that they don't have good jobs, they don't have adequate human capital, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so uh, it may also make them, you know, property owners, which, uh, you know, the, um, the right thought was uh, a good thing to have, a lot more property owners in the system. Uh, the left wanted people to, uh, workers to own their houses and, and become wealthier. So both sides sort of converged on this thing that we have to expand housing credit. Mm. And, and I think that's a good idea, but uh, within limits, right? And, and the problem was that it became too much uh, of a movement in its own right. And um, too much credit pushed too easily uh, can actually do harm. Uh, and even the people who get the credit can be harmed because they can get it at the wrong time as prices are really going up. Uh, they may not be able to afford uh, the houses. Uh, they may not uh, be able to afford the consumption that it made possible. They, they drew down on, the, on their home equity lines and then found that Price, house price collapsed and they had no equity anymore. In fact, they were deeply in debt. Mm. So um, like all good ideas, there, it, 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 there's probably um, a reasonable amount to which it should be pushed. And I think both uh, the Republicans and the Democrats pushed it more than it should have been pushed. And, and, and of course, uh, as credit became easier, um, a whole bunch of, uh, of lenders got in and some of those lenders weren't particularly scrupulous. Uh, and, and this thing became a credit boom mm -hmm. uh, with, uh, with perverse uh, sort of uh, outcomes like uh, my colleague uh, Amr Sufi and Atif Mia have pointed out that, you know, some of the poorest neighborhoods uh, got more credit than some of the richer neighborhoods. Uh, yeah, and, the, the number of mortgages was inversely correlated to income. Exactly. And so, so that kind of, of, uh, of um, environment uh, eventually, uh, you know, contributed to the depth of the crisis. Was the proximate cause of the expansion of credit politicians making cynical calculations or was it politicians just rationally responding to the demands of constituents? I think it was uh, a little bit of uh, responding to constituents who wanted uh, greater access to credit to, to be able to buy homes. But I think it was also a, a calculation. Uh, I don't know cynical, but, but certainly a calculation that um, happy homeowners uh, made happier by, by house price increases. Um, are homeowners who don't have to worry so much about their, their income growth. Mm -hmm. And incomes weren't growing particularly strongly for the lower middle to middle class at that time. So the, the Let Them Make Credit view says that credit was extended almost as compensation for stagnant incomes. I think there was more pressure on politicians to do something yeah. if, if incomes weren't growing. Yeah. And this was something which kept people happy. Uh, yeah. And and why not? Yeah. Because if incomes aren't growing, then the only way you can consume more is through debt or, or equity. Right. And, and, and this gave people the illusion that they weren't borrowing because their home 
prices were increasing. And so they were just drawing down on the equity they already had. Yeah. Uh, rather than actually taking loans. Uh, so uh, drawdown sounds better than borrowing. Yeah. And, and you know, the, the truth of the matter is they were borrowing against uh, appreciation, which, which was getting more and more fragile because, uh, you know, it was based uh, on, on, a, on a bubble. Mm. So there's an even more pessimistic interpretation of what happened, which was that it wasn't so much that credit was being extended as like a palliative for inequality and stagnant wages, but it was actually a mechanism of upward redistribution because once people took on these enormous debts, then they were, I guess, like transferring permanent income um, to the rich through, you know, like banks and the the shareholders of banks. Um, although I guess that, that sounds like a bit too sinister yeah, to I, be I, true. I, I think that... Um, what was true is that the mechanisms that allowed, um, you know, these home lenders, for example, to make some of these mortgage loans and, and take in the fees and then, you know, pay themselves big, big bonuses based on the fees that they, they got from these loans was there. Whether the entire system was, was sort of rigged to, you know, give them more bonuses Mm. Or whether it was an outcome of a system which which was, you know, f- uh, at least a, a, you know publicly intended to give more credit uh, to people. I think. Um, I mean, I'm happy to to stay with the good intent gone bad, rather than saying the intent was bad in the first place uh, to give the plutocrats yet more money. Yeah. And typically, I would say if you. I mean, if you search the souls of the politicians, uh, uh, if we had access to it, I think they get in, many get into the business because they want to do good. Yeah. Uh, what outcomes uh, emerge from that can, may not be may not be the right ones. Mm. But but I, I I think that they would uh, start with the intent of lining the pockets of the rich at the expense of the poor. I think that's that's a little further than I want to go. Yeah, I agree. So. As intuitively compelling as I find the let them eat credit narrative, there still feels like a paucity of empirical evidence for the causal link between inequality and the expansion of credit. Have you found any, or what's the closest to a smoking gun that you found? Um, So the, I mean, what is clear is from the work of people like uh, Mian and Sufi that there was a perversity in the credit that was offered, right? And that this flowed much more than in previous, in the past, uh, to low-rated borrowers, to poorer neighborhoods, uh, as you said, inversely proportional to income. So there was an attempt to to reverse the traditional flow. And again, that could have been completely driven by, uh, you know, we want to expand access to credit. Mm. What, what what is the missing piece to some extent uh, is what was intent. Uh, was it intended as a, a palliative? Uh, and, and that you, you can only gauge, uh, I mean, by going into the minds of, uh, of, the, of the politicians. Yeah. Uh, why did they do this? Uh, but what was clear was it was from both sides. Yeah. 
the easing of credit standards, the attempt to expand access uh, was was both Republican and Democrat. Yeah. Yeah, you're right that even that Mean and Sufi paper that showed, that looked at the zip codes and found that between 2002 and 2005, the number of mortgages was inversely correlated to incomes. Even that feels quite circumstantial. Um, a couple of years ago, I, I had a look around on Google Scholar for whether there were any papers that got at that question of intent that you raised. And I could only find two, but neither of them was particularly conclusive. One of them was actually another me and Sufi uh, and Treby paper, mm-hmm. um, which was called The Political Economy of the Subprime Mortgage Credit Expansion. Um, and then there was another one by Bertrand and Morse called Trickle Down Consumption. That, that's the one I had in mind. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. yeah. they, they look at a particular bill. Yeah. Yeah. And that, yeah. 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 Is there international evidence for the let them make credit view? Like how, how universal is it as a phenomenon? Well, I, look, I, I think the idea that uh, credit can be a, a palliative uh, is something that uh, is seen in, I mean, look at Indian farm credit. Right. Um, we, we keep uh, extending loans to farmers and, uh, the idea is this is really a transfer because we also waive the, the loans, uh, you know, every few elections uh, once they become really burdensome. Yeah. And, and, and it becomes a system of transfer which doesn't have to be budgeted for at the time, um, you know, that you're initiating it mm. because it seems like what you're doing is really um, expanding credit. Mm. Uh, and and that's that's not a, a gift, but then when you write it off, uh, it does become explicitly a, a transfer. Yeah, uh, I think I mean that's one example where you using credit uh, for this um, objective of really softening people's uh, hardship. Yeah, and I think that there are better ways of doing it than through credit. Credit allows you to mask the budgetary impact. Yeah, yeah. I was trying to work out the intellectual history of Let Them Make Credit, and I was curious how it originated in your thinking and whether you can take me through the chronology of that. Was it, you mentioned the 2009 Sean Cole paper on Indian agricultural credit. Was it, was it that, or was it a conversation with Amir Sufi or Joseph Mason at LSU who alerted you to that uh, 1995 National Home Ownership Strategy document. No, I'm I, I'm going to reflect my uh, my age, but there is there's a uh, a guy at uh, who wrote paper after paper saying credit was was misdirected. This is a guy who's uh, from the right. His was more a conspiracy theory that this this was, uh, um, but he was trying to put the blame. Of of the entire subprime episode on on government, right? And and I thought half the blame should belong to the government, yeah. But half should belong to the private sector yeah. also, yeah. So there is a, I mean, the, post crisis, uh, before the work of uh, of uh, you know Seru or Mian and Sufi, um, I think there was increasing. Uh, discussion of the fact that um, government policies before uh, on housing were partly to blame. 
Mm. So, so that uh, I think was the was a spur for my thinking about this in in this particular way. Right. Um, during the crisis, I'd written about the uh, the kind of odd um, incentive structures in the in the private sector. The you know. Uh, let me take the bonus today and let the downside risk come tomorrow. Yeah. So so long as I take tail risk, that's fine. I mm. get the I get the money up front, mm. and somebody else bears the losses down the line. That was part of what was going on, but part was this. You know, why did we why did it get focused initially on subprime housing? Yeah. And that was the government piece. Yeah. And there, you know, tracing back the policies of of both sides. Uh, you know, um, Barney Frank was uh, was uh, you know at every opening of uh, housing projects in uh, in uh, Massachusetts, mm. um, but he also eventually wrote the Dodd Frank bill. Yeah. So I think I think it was it was a bipartisan effort at pushing housing. Right. When you wrote Fault Lines, the let them make credit view was underrated. Has this changed? I, I look. I think when uh, people now are looking at some of the consequences of what happened. So, for example, uh, I had a student who was looking at um, how um, credit affected minorities, and one of the worries is that minorities who are, you know, who find access to credit harder. Uh, found it easier in the run-up to the crisis and were well-positioned to bear the brunt of the losses during the crisis. Mm. And so it really hurt them. So that's an example of places where people are sort of looking at this and saying what might have been well-intentioned up front eventually uh, can be quite harmful to the people it was meant to serve. And so, you know, some of the uh, people looking at uh, historically disadvantaged communities and how they got drawn into the crisis uh, and were spit out, uh, mm. you know, as, um, you know, uh, uh, suffered badly during the crisis. I right. think that's, that's, there's more work coming out on that. So that work indicates that the economics profession is not underrating the let them make credit view as much anymore. I don't think so. I, I, I think uh, if you look at microfinance, for example, mm. people are increasingly uh, sort of, uh, certainly pra in practice, but also in some of the work, uh, worrying about uh, excessive lending. Mm. So uh, earlier it was, oh, this is an underserved community. We have to get uh, money to them. Uh, but there have been a number of episodes now, uh, certainly in India, where, um, you know, people overborrow and, and then are left sort of uh, are being hounded by the, by the lenders mm. uh, to repay when they simply don't have the capacity uh, given how much they've borrowed. Mm. And so, uh, you know, there is more of a sense now that one, a public policy uh, plus the private sector may make it too easy to access for uh, for the disadvantaged to access credit, and they themselves 
may not have the capacity to understand what is reasonable. And in fact, uh, you know, they'll take what whatever comes because their discounting of the future is is much higher. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, sick child today, let me try and get the child to a hospital and so what if I have to borrow? Yeah. But then the loan has to be paid tomorrow. Uh, that's when the borrowers start, uh, the lenders start hounding mm-hmm. this person. I myself, uh, uh, you know, while I was in India, was much more focused on pushing payments and other services as the lead into inclusion rather than pushing credit as the first thing. Yeah. Because it struck me that the problem with, with pushing credit was that before people know how to manage their finances, if they get easy credit, uh, there's likelihood they will overborrow and then face problems down the line. Mm. Why doesn't the private sector understand how much people can borrow? And, and uh, I mean, that's that's same question that you want to ask of the subprime lenders in the US. Mm. Uh, and there's a sense uh, when there's collective euphoria, they can all repay, uh, they'll find some way to repay. Uh, and when the euphoria dies down, uh, there is no way to repay. Yeah, yeah. And the lenders are subject to the same euphoria. Exactly. Apart from inequality in the US, one of the other fault lines you wrote about in fault lines was that between developing countries and Japan, whose economies had been shaped by export-led growth, and who were looking to offload their surpluses, and then, on the other hand, developed countries looking to spend. On reflection, to what extent does the problem just collapse back into inequality again, because those surpluses could be the result of inequality within developing countries? Um, uh, perhaps. Um, so uh, what, what I was trying to talk about was the fact that we had a period of global imbalances. Some of it was driven by, um, you know, uh, uh, the U.S. consumer being the consumer of first and last resort for the world. Mm. And uh, essentially um, driving large uh, current account deficits in the U.S., but it was also true of Spain, of uh, of Portugal, uh, you know, countries in in Europe, uh, of of Greece that were um, basically now had access to uh, easier credit within the euro system, and uh, who had become part of the euro system. So they, you know, the euro was their currency. And uh, essentially, uh, they suddenly found borrowing constraints were much more relaxed, both on the private side as well as the sovereign side. Mm. And so they went on a spending spree, uh, even though they had to have uh, pretty severe constraints while getting into the euro. Once they were in the euro, it liberated uh, you know, spending. So, at at a at a national level, you had the phenomenon of uh, of relatively poor countries within the uh, euro area uh, going out more on a limb and and taking on on big debts. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, within the emerging markets, I think it, it was more a question of of being a little more cautious about generating those spending sprees. Uh, 
especially in in some of the Asian economies where you remembered what happened during the Asian uh, financial crisis. And and so um, instead of running a deficit, uh, you tended to focus on running a surplus mm. and let somebody else spend. Uh, and you 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 try and um, in a sense accommodate that spending through your exports. You you um, let demand happen elsewhere. Domestic demand, uh, getting your own people to spend by giving them easy money, um, we had discovered was a problem, and would end up you know creating um, banking banking problems and and other problems. Uh, I think a bunch of emerging markets discovered that in the 1990s. So they had flipped over and moved to running more surpluses. And the industrial countries were quite happy to run the deficits. And uh, and so it was a, a marriage made in heaven till it stopped being a marriage. <laughs> so I want to move to central banking. But before I do that, a brief interlude on the IMF. So I mentioned to a former very senior Australian economic policymaker that we were going to be speaking. And this person said to me, quote, one topic I would want to discuss with him is how frustrating it must have been to have had the US preaching about the importance of a rules-based international order from which it saw itself as exempt, the so-called American exceptionalism. In my view, the inability of the IMF to deal with this, especially in the years following the Asian financial crisis, when the U.S. lectured the rest of the world about the need to reform the global financial architecture, but rejected all commentary about its own policy failures, explains much of what precipitated the GFC. End quote. To what extent do you or did you share this policymaker's frustration? So, uh, what was true at the IMF was the big countries had a, a, a bigger say in what you could say about them. Um, in the sense that we recognize the large U.S. current account deficit um, the, and, and uh, also the fiscal deficit, uh, the twin deficit problem at that time. Um, I would say that officially the view at the fund was this was the central problem and this would would you know, uh, eventually lead to a collapse in the, you know, uh, a, a kind of macro crisis of some kind, uh, typically, you know, currency crisis. I, I think while I was at the fund, I started talking about the financial sector and the problems. But um, I don't think the official view of the fund was that the collapse would come from the financial sector. Uh, the sense was always that the collapse would come from some kind of a, a, a collapse in the dollar or something like that, right? And, and it turned out that wasn't right. Uh, but I think the, the sense in the fund that there, was the, there were these global imbalances and, you know, they were weakening the system was indeed there. And in fact, uh, we put together... Uh, somewhat bravely, uh, um, uh, what was called a multilateral consultation, uh, which was really an attempt to get the big players in these deficits and surpluses to talk to each other and find ways to bring it down. And, and my sense is we, we persuaded the U.S. that it would, this was a good thing for the U.S. to participate in. Uh, 
and and it, you know we went uh, to a bunch of capitals to talk about how it was important to make changes and then there was a change in the us treasury uh, the secretary who was supporting this left and a new secretary came in and uh, he had no uh, sort of desire to uh, participate in this anymore and and the whole initiative just collapsed uh, reflecting to some extent what your interlocutor uh, said which is that the participation of big countries matters uh, them having the right attitude matters but it's not always that they you know want to push back on what the IMF does sometimes they are supportive in this case they were initially mm. okay so to central banking when you look around the world which central bank or banks have the best adapted governance structure for their circumstances? That's a tough question. Um, I mean, I, I, I think that um, uh, a whole bunch of countries have the governance structure that they need. Uh, I think the Fed is reasonably well governed. Um, I think the... Um, you know, um, the Reserve Bank of India has a reasonable governance structure for the country it is in and for the circumstances that it faces. Um, I don't think the issue is as much the governance structure as it is, uh, you know, the kind of, of beliefs that that sort of permeate a central bank at, at, at different points in time. The culture? I would say more the, the uh, economic ideology. It, right. it's, it's not so much a political ideology, but the economic ideology. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I guess we, we will implicitly come to that question of economic ideology. Um, but some more, some more questions on central banking generally. So, it's interesting to me that central banks often draw their leaders from abroad. So examples include Mark Carney at the Bank of England, Stanley Fisher at the Bank of Israel, Gabriel McClough at the Bank of Ireland. Why are central bank chiefs more like national football coaches than, say, heads of intelligence agencies in that they can be recruited from overseas? And what is it about the nature of the role that makes this plausible? Actually, I, I, I'll push back on that okay. uh, a little bit because I, I think Mark Carney has some British roots, right? Uh, he's not entirely... Um, uh, uh, well, he, he's, uh, he, he's part of the Commonwealth, broadly speaking, right? Okay. But, but also that he has, he has some British roots. Uh, Stanley Fisher you know, uh, was always in the, in the U.S. Yeah. Uh, and, and Israel, where he was uh, governor, he's, uh, you know, I don't know if he has Israeli citizenship. I think he has dual citizenship. Yeah, yeah, yeah he must have. Mm. Uh, he's also Rhodesian, by the way. So, oh, wow. <laughs> so, uh, but, you know, I think neither of those guys, I, I don't know the third person you mentioned, but neither of those guys would have uh, stood out uh, from the banks, well, uh, maybe the, the third a person bit. is a Brit yeah. in Ireland. Yeah, uh, uh, that's that's also not too far away. Uh, I do think that central banking is a very political job, and uh, it is not 
I mean, it may seem technocratic, and yeah, you 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 think about what R star is, and you set uh, interest rates with that in mind. I mean, where you think R star is is completely political, uh, or in, I shouldn't say completely political. Cannot be devoid of politics, um, but but your language, your persuasion, uh, the extent of uh, hostility that you face, all that is uh, is uh, political mm. and um, you have to make the case that you're doing something which is in the interest of a country at all times and the less suspicion that there is that you're not against the country in some way the better it is now it may be that as a neutral technocrat uh, you can you can convince uh, but it's, in my view, better that uh, there be no doubt about your your allegiance and your your sense of way way that you want to do the best you can for the country. Right. To what extent are central banks truly independent? I don't think they are. Uh, I think that. Um, I mean, technically. Uh, as a central bank chief, some countries will make it very hard to fire you. Um, does that mean that you can do what you want? No. Um, you may have to go back to parliament for funding for this or that. You may need the support of parliament for uh, certain actions that you need to take under certain circumstances. And, and Parliament can, you know, if it's really angry with you, impose rules on you, which uh, which would constrain your your activities. So, no matter, I mean, you can feel happy that you can't be fired. Um, you may still worry about reappointment. I don't know how many people worry about reappointment, but even if you don't worry about reappointment, there's still the issue of will my capacity to run this institution. Uh, towards the aims that I have been given be compromised if I do something here or there. And, 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 and in some sense, you're always thinking, okay, what's the political cost of taking this action uh, versus the economic benefit? Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, for most actions, the political cost may be small, but there are some actions for which the political cost may be really big. And then you want to think twice, thrice, do I want to devote the political capital I have to that particular cause? You alluded to the fact that parliaments ironically try to influence central banks by threatening to undermine their independence. Would it be optimal or or best practice for central bank independence to be enshrined in constitutions so that parliaments can't make those threats? You know, I don't think it's wise to completely put the central bank outside of any kind of control. Uh, I think unelected officials should have some oversight by the elected representatives of the people. Uh, I think there's there's a there's a there's a there's a optimal point where you respect 
them and you try and not go too far uh, away from what is politically acceptable. Uh, but there are times when there is something you need to do which will cause pain, which somebody who wanted to be elected uh, in the next election would perhaps not espouse, but which you think is needed uh, not just for the next election cycle, for, but for many election cycles down the line. Right. That's when, if you have enough independence as a central bank, you can make the tough choice. But to completely ignore the elected representatives of the people all the time, well, sometimes they actually have, you know, sensible ideas which you should be paying more attention to. There can be an input. The, I think having a dialogue with them is not a bad thing. And having respect for them, uh, uh, respect for their views, and not being able to dismiss them out of hand is important. At the same time, being under their thumb is not where you want to be. Mm -hmm. So... All I'm saying is the trade-offs here. Yeah. I think complete independence is probably not warranted. Complete dominance is not warranted. There's an intermediate place where I think uh, societies achieve a, you know, a reasonable outcome. Some questions about the history of inflation targeting. So as you know, the Reserve Bank of New Zealand was the first central bank to adopt an explicit inflation target in 1990. It picked 2%, and then soon after, all the major central banks followed suit. Why have all the major central banks coalesced around this 2% number? How was it derived? I think just like the Basel capital requirements initially, which uh, uh, was set at, if I recall, 8%, right. uh, uh, out of thin air. Uh, <laughs> it seemed like a reasonable thing, not too close to zero, and not too high up that, uh, you know, at some point, inflation becomes noticeable. 2% is a level where you get some inflation, but nobody really cares about it. Um, what, I mean, so studies of where inflation becomes a problem typically would say somewhere in the double digits. So there's a lot of room between two and, 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 and double digits, right? And, and, and the reality is... Um, the worry is when inflation is higher, it can start getting a life of its own. And so what you want is a level of inflation which is low enough that nobody really uh, cares too much about it. Mm -hmm. And then what that does is it, it means that, you know, things get anchored around that. And, you know, price movements, there are relative price movements, but not a absolute price movement. Right. It's at the higher levels that the relative price movements become more absolute price movements. Right. And, and you get more generalized inflation from, say, the oil price going up and right. stuff like that. And I suppose there may also be some kind of psychological effect of double digits. I, 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 I'd say high. So, you know, 8 9% is also a reasonably high level of inflation. Okay. Ways, you know, and remember, it's an average. So things could be going up 15, 20 and say, oh, my God, my, uh, my shoes have gone up so much. Yeah. And that's, you know, and uh, as you know, uh, people's thinking about inflation is never driven by the CPI. It's driven by the salient stuff that you see, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, what, what do I think is most important? And, and that's going to drive your perception. Yeah. Well, I have a question on that. It's a small question. 
Uh, <laughs> what, what's your best explanation for how inflation expectations are actually formed? You know, it, it, it's a great question because I always wondered um, how, certainly in India, because, you know, uh, our whole edifice of inflation control is built on discussions of bringing inflation expectations under control, right, to bringing them down. And to some extent, what was absolutely clear was that what we said we, were, we intended to do, uh, and I think we had got credibility, uh, was, you know, exactly what the analysts uh, and the monetary journalists thought would happen. So, so we were very good at, at getting their expectations, um, you know, more focused uh, on, on, you know, what, what we intended. What I couldn't fathom was how this got into the public's expectations. Uh, because unlike, unlike industrial countries, uh, we didn't have, you know, strong wage-setting bodies, unions, and so on, where you would think the second round of expectations would sort of flow. The unions would, would you know, maybe read what the analysts are saying and say, okay, maybe we should shoot for 3% or 4% inflation in our wage. wage. Uh, we didn't have a whole lot of that in India. So, so how did it get from there down to the public's expectations? Mm. If you look at surveys... I mean, they were so far from the actual inflation numbers. I mean, historically, they'd always been much higher than the actual inflation numbers, uh, but also how they moved down over time. Yet we brought inflation down from double digits to within our inflation band. Uh, and, you know, um, I, I still am not fully sure of how that mechanism worked. Any hunches? I mean, I, I, I think things percolate. Yeah, and, and I think they feed on themselves. So, um, and lastly, luck ha luck helps. If if some of the salient aspects of inflation get taken care of, food prices, fuel prices, mm. uh, and they slow down, people then their expectations become more more moderate. Right. So so, but can you target food and fuel? Well, some some government management can target food. Fuel is much harder. That's, yeah. that's more an international price. For India particularly. For India particularly. So, but I, I, I think that, um, I think things percolate, but it's not as, you know, sometimes when you read these, uh, these papers in journals, you know, uh, central bank sets a particular inflation objective and it sub somehow gets internalized by the system. Yeah. Uh, that, uh, step, there's a lot of hocus pocus in how that happens. A bit of magic. So you oversaw the introduction of India's inflation targeting scheme and India's inflation target obviously is, is 4% plus or minus 2%. How is that target derived? Well, that's, that's much simpler, right? So um, I, 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 I started with this notion that, look, you know, a salient price is the rupee-dollar exchange rate. Uh, that's what a lot of people focus on and uh, seem to think that um, that's an important indicator of the strength of the economy, but also, you know, um, what's going on and inflation, et cetera, et cetera. So 
let's try to have an inflation target which would keep that nominal exchange rate reasonably stable. And if we have around 2% uh, real productivity growth, um, maybe with a 4% inflation, uh, our nominal exchange rate would be relatively stable against the, the dollar. Right. So that, it was as simple as that. <laughs> I mean, not to belabor this, this point, but just generally, doesn't it strike you as odd how kind of arbitrarily these numbers can be picked? Yeah. Uh, Given yes. they're so important? Um, I don't think it matters that much. Um, it's more that they're low and, and you just hit them consistently. Yeah, yeah. I think that's what's more important. Right. And this is where I think, you know, people say, oh, 2% is too low, let's go to 4 Well, there's never a good time to do that. Mm. Uh, if you are way above 2 and you say, let's go to 4 it sounds like you're admitting defeat. I can't get back to 2 right. Let's change the goalpost. Let's change the goalpost. And, and of course, if you are at 2 or below 2 and you say 4 sometimes the problem when you're below 2 is really getting inflation up. That was the whole uh, problem before the pandemic, right? Mm. Uh, the Fed had too low inflation. I, th- I think it was 1.2% or something over the, over the previous decade uh, before it changed its framework. And I said, look, we, we, we really need to get it up, but uh, it ignored people who were saying, say four, because it seemed a little ridiculous. You can't reach two, so you say four. Uh, instead, what it did was it changed the framework to be a little more accommodating of inflation. Mm. Um, I would say it doesn't really matter what number you pick so long as it is below the radar screen of people. But what is important, I think, what I would say as far as the inflation target goes is we have much better tools, we have much better understanding how to bring inflation down. We are much less capable of pushing inflation up when it is low. At the same time, it's probably not that Problematic if it's 1% and your inflation target is 2, the world doesn't come to an end because Mm -hmm. of that. It's just that people still don't pay attention to inflation. Mm. It's when it's galloping deflation that it becomes a problem. Right. And yet we haven't seen galloping deflation anywhere since perhaps the Great Depression. Yeah. And so I would say be a little more relaxed on the downside. Don't say that I'm underperforming my inflation target. I have to pull out all stops and find some new monetary tool to to, uh, expand the economy. Instead, say, okay, what I'll do is when it exceeds the target, I will bring it back to the target. When it is below the target, I'll be a little more relaxed. I'll do what it, you know, if it, it may be a sign that I can be a little more accommodative, but I'm not going to get aggressive on it. Because if I start getting aggressive and trying to push inflation up, uh, bad things can happen. Right. So that, that asymmetry is relevant to this broader conversation around unconventional monetary policy, which I want to come to now. So firstly, after the GFC, mm-hmm. why didn't the Keynesian approach to restoring aggregate demand work? It's a great question. Uh, I mean, uh, um, my my colleagues have talked about excess debt, um, and um, others. Um, you know, Larry Summers uh, uses the term secular stagnation, uh, though it's a little fast and loose about where the stagnation comes from. Uh, I don't. I'd, I I think the the reality is uh, 
um, that, you know, post-global financial crisis, uh, there certainly was still a worry about too much uh, fiscal stimulus. And there are those who say that perhaps the fiscal stimulus post-global financial crisis was a little too little. Uh, It was only a trillion (laughs) relative to the six trillion that happened uh, during the pandemic. Um, Be that as it may, my own sense, which is what I I wrote about in, 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 in my book, The Third Pillar, was that I mean, the reality was developed countries had a development problem. And that was, so it demonstrated itself in the inequality and so on. But the real problem was that you had a whole bunch of people who didn't have uh, the the skills that would get them good jobs. And, and to some extent, until you focused on that, uh, I think it was going to be harder to, um, you know, get the kind of growth that you needed. Uh, In other words, you had to do structural reforms. And this sounds like, you know, the annoying uh, sort of uh, old geezer who says whenever uh, things are slowing down, oh, you you young pups, you always want to stimulate. You you actually need to fix the underlying problems, structural reforms. But I, I, I do think you know, as as a number of people have suggested, one of the problems with the low demand in industrial countries stems from inequality. That the you know lower end uh, could consume more, would consume more, but doesn't have the incomes. But how do you generate more incomes at the lower end? Uh, you have to uh, you know make them more capable of getting good jobs, which means focus on capabilities, skill building, et cetera. And, you know, for all the talk about the China effect on the U.S., uh, I think the reality is the U.S. has a lousy system of uh, training people in in response to trade shocks. The trade adjustment mechanisms simply don't work. Uh, On the other hand, small economies like Sweden or or, um, uh, Denmark have very active processes by which workers are constantly being trained for potential new jobs if they lose their old jobs. Hmm. And I think that kind of more active labor market policy would have been more effective uh, for the kinds of shocks that the U.S. faced. But more broadly, I think the point is, uh, while the U.S. doesn't have that active training process, it has a wonderful... um, you know, higher education system, um, and and to the extent that that can be purposed towards providing a broader set of skills. Now, again, that system did go into overdrive, but sometimes provided the wrong kind of skills to the wrong kind of people yeah. at high debt. Uh, the student loan problem is is another problem mm. related to the uh, let them eat credit problem that we saw with housing, and and so I I think again this is a problem with no easy solution. But it is one that I don't think the answer is more stimulus. The answer is more reform, which creates more capabilities. It's it's a development problem rather than a stimulus problem. Yeah. To the extent that quantitative easing is effective, is your guess that the dominant mechanism is signaling or that it's portfolio rebalancing? 
I, I think the jury is still out. So, so the portfolio rebalancing idea for quantitative easing is: look, we're going to push down. Um, uh, we're going to take long-term assets out of your portfolio. I'm going to say it as simply as I can. We're going to take long-term assets out of the private portfolio. That gives the private sector an incentive to rebalance towards the longer term, and that's going to be really, really good for the economy because they're going to rebalancing towards the longer term means making longer term loans, getting new projects financed, uh, and and that's going to be uh, a driver. Um, so effectively, we're going to take out term premium, and as it gets reestablished, you get the kind of uh, of uh, lending and activity that that you desire. Um, by the way, we've, we've sort of, uh, when you think about it in the detail, it doesn't happen that way because what happens is um, you're buying these long-term assets uh, from, the, from the private sector, uh, but they don't immediately rebalance into new long-term assets. And instead, what happens is... Um, because some of the financing of these reserves that are issued by the central bank take place in the banking sector, the banking sector actually goes the other way. It shrinks uh, its, um, uh, its, the maturity of its liabilities towards more demandable claims and away from, uh, from uh, time deposits. Mm. And so offsetting... Uh, this uh, the fact that you know the private sector as a whole may want more longer term assets. The commercial banking sector actually uh, produces more short term liabilities mm. and inhibits its own ability to finance longer term. So uh, it's not as simple as portfolio rebalancing. The other point you talked about was was um, signaling, and this is the idea that. So long as I'm doing quantitative uh, easing, I'm not going to raise interest rates. Uh, and that's most associated with uh, Arvind Krishnamurti and Anat Vissing Jorgensen. I think that's a, it's, it's a good point. And to some extent, uh, both the Fed and the ECB stayed on hold longer in order to finish quantitative easing, perhaps to verify this instrument for the future to hmm. um, strengthen the quality of this uh, this this idea for the future. Um, but broadly, I think it's really hard to find serious positive effects on activity from QE. And going back to our previous discussion, it may be that really the need of the R uh, in the period between the end of the panic uh, in the global financial crisis and the beginning of the pandemic, what you needed in, in the in-between period was really structural reforms. <laughs> hmm. uh, and I'm going to be a little bit of a broken record on that. <laughs> no, by all means. A, a brief digression just on this point about signaling uh, kind of got me wondering what proportion of central banking is just mere signaling as opposed to like more object level effects? It's hard to say. I mean, look... Um, I think central bankers worry a lot about portraying a reasonable degree of confidence that they know what they're doing and that even if there is short-term pain, there is much longer-term gain. Uh, and we talked earlier about political uh, signaling. That's part of the political signaling also. You have to convince the representatives of the people 
that you're not masochistic. You're not just inflicting pain for the sake of pain, mm. and you're not completely, you know, some nutcase who's an in, you know, going to just focus on inflation and and forget what the pain to the real economy is. You're basically saying, I understand, and even taking into account all the pain that I'm going to inflict. Uh, trust me, we have thought about this a long time. We have a lot of evidence, and. it would suggest better take some pain now than have a long drawn out painful process and much greater pain down the line that's the argument that central bankers have to say make again and again would all aspiring central bankers benefit from studying signaling theory i don't think it's so much signaling theory <laughs> as as um they need to show a degree of confidence about what they're about Hmm. and i mean the classic example was was mario draghi with his uh you know uh, we'll do what it takes and trust me it'll be enough uh his uh, one signaling what he intends which is to not allow the fragmentation of the euro area and and second that he's confident he has the ammunition and uh, I, i'm sure uh years from now we will still be talking about that as an example of a central banker sort of essentially uh portraying confidence about what he was about and that he could do it uh whether he really believed he had all the tools and and whether he could do it uh i mean you have to ask him yeah but i i think it it is exactly what what a central banker is supposed to do my favorite kind of formulation of this was a blog post written by my friend and a former podcast guest John Hampton in 2011 he's like a famous short seller and hedge fund manager in Australia and um th- this was when you know people were arguing that Ben Bernanke needed to be like irresponsible and commit to encouraging higher than normal inflation to try and raise expectations and Hampton's blog post was that you know Bernanke should um like go on CNBC announce that he's buying Italian government bonds wearing a Hawaiian shirt and then light up a marijuana pipe and start smoking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, and you know, um absolutely. I I I do think that uh a less uh <laughs> uh a, a, a less effusive way of doing it was the new framework that the Fed adopted in yeah. 2020. Yeah. Unfortunately, it was adopted at just the wrong time. <laughs> so has unconventional monetary policy been good or bad on net um i think history um i mean jury is still out so i think we'll need a lot of uh, of uh, analysis i would say it was very good early on uh, if we're talking about quantitative easing it was good early on when it was about repairing markets much harder to find evidence that it was you know hugely positive after that and because there's so many other things happening in 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 financial markets as well as in the real economy it's very hard to tell the signal from the noise uh you know later uh, uh you know did for example uh, qe work in bringing down the term premium uh, depending on which study you see uh you can get different answers but i i I, I and and especially when you ask the question did it have positive effects on real activity 
uh, it's easy to see where, you know, Draghi says we're going to buy bonds and, and then, you know, uh, suddenly bond prices of uh, European sovereigns go up. Banks, which are holding a lot of this, see their equity prices go up and then they effectively have more capital. Uh, they can go out and lend and there's some of that that happens. Well, that seems like a natural mechanism. You can understand that. Mm. Whether the broader mechanism, the portfolio balancing, rebalancing, the signaling, any of that helped elevate activity, much harder to tell. And as you know, my colleague, along with a bunch of co-authors, has written a paper, Lubos Pastor, basically saying it depends on the eye of the beholder. If you get a, if you look at studies by central banks, Oh, is this the Fifty Shades yeah, of QE? Yeah, Fifty Shades of QE. And they, QA. they look at those 54 papers. Yeah. And uh, basically, um, there's a lot of noise. In, and, and I don't think it's, it's um, I don't think uh, the, the authors of the studies are, are falsifying data in any way. Mm. I just think it uh, depends on how you, 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 what period you look at, what, what, uh, variables you look at, what, what you put on the right-hand side in the regression. Yeah. And it does suggest that the results are tenuous enough that uh, you can have different interpretations. And that, to me, suggests that it's not clear that it had a, a lot of positive effect. I do think getting out of these enormous balance sheets is going to be a huge problem. And we've already seen one of the downsides uh, which is that, you know, I would suggest the fiscal, uh, the ease with which we have seen fiscal expansion in the last few years, which is now, you know, starting to seem problematic, uh, is in part because central banks were big buyers. I'm not saying it's the only reason, but I think the fact that uh, long-term rates were anesthetized uh, during the period of enormous fiscal expansion helped. Um, and, you know, indeed, there are some economists who said, oh, go out and spend. Long-term rates are really low. This is a good time to spend uh, without thinking about the fact that, um, you know, spending takes a life of its own. Mm. On that Fifty Shades of QE paper, just for people wondering, I think they find that papers written by central banks are broadly positive about the effects of QE. Papers written by academic economists are ambivalent. And then the Bundesbank is like moderately negative. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and it's the Bundesbank which is the most interesting, right? Here's a central yeah. bank, uh, except that the official view in that central bank is is generally negative on uh, on aggressive monetary policy. Yeah. And... Uh, Surprise, it, it, it doesn't find a positive result. <laughs> and what's the path dependence or history of that institution that makes it negative about QA? I, look, I, I think that it has historically been conservative. Hmm. And of course, the German experience with hyperinflation in the 20s hmm. and, and at least the hint that that might have led to the rise of Hitler hmm. uh, because it wiped out the middle class is something that they are acutely aware of. Mm. Uh, flip side, of course, is from the American perspective, the deflation of the 30s is something that seems to be, uh, you know, very strongly embedded in, uh, in the psyche of, uh, of American central bankers. If you recall Bernanke's famous uh, statement to Friedman, uh, you know, we, we know the mistake we made then, we won't do it again. Yeah, you were right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, 
So in that sense, I think uh, these episodes, and that's where we, I came to economic ideology, I said uh, earlier in the mm. broadcast, right? That's to some, some extent what I, what I mean. There is a, a national ethos uh, that gets embedded into central bank thinking also. Uh, this is what we need to guard against. So the U.S. is very much guarding against a deflationary episode. Not that we've actually seen one in the recent past, but of course, the argument could be we haven't seen one because we've been guarding against it. Uh, while the, the Bundesbank is much more worried about inflationary episodes mm. and uh, wants to jump at the first sign that it sees any. So thinking about problems like liquidity dependence, to what extent did central banks, in your opinion, have a clear exit plan when they embarked on unconventional monetary policy and QA? I don't think they felt there was a need for one. Uh, if you recall, when uh, the Fed embarked on QE uh, the first time, um, you know, uh, I think it was uh, one of the Fed presidents, uh, later echoed by Janet Yellen, uh, one of the Fed presidents uh, said, basically, it's going to be as boring as watching paint dry. Mm. There was a sense that you had built up so much in terms of assets, all you had to do was sell it back to the market. At worst, what would happen, would you see, you'd see a reemergence of the term premium, which you had extinguished by buying those long-term assets. But, you know, that's uh, what goes down must come up. That's all there is to it. I don't think that um, anybody thought about the consequence of this kind of central bank balance sheet expansion that it could lead, have led to an expansion in the commercial bank balance sheets, which is, you know, what we, um, uh, my co-authors, uh, Virala Acharya and uh, Sasha Stefan and Raul Chauhan and I, we showed that that expansion in the commercial bank balance sheet is something to worry about because it doesn't come down at the same pace as a central bank uh, balance sheet expansion. And what you get is a more and more fractional reserve banking system as the central bank withdraws reserves. Um, now, of course, we now have a second episode of quantitative tightening. And this one early on precipitated uh, a mini crisis with the banking crisis in March of 2023. And, and since then, uh, you do see uh, commercial banks also shrinking their balance sheets, but for a different reason, which is that they now have to pay high interest rates and they simply don't want to pay those high interest rates anymore. To what extent should we view QA as being motivated by political considerations? And namely, say, take the Fed, for example, um, it had done a lot in bailing out Wall Street and then it felt that it needed to be seen to be doing something for Main Street? Um, I, I don't think, as with any question of intent, it's possible to draw a straight line and, and be sure of it. Yeah. I do think that uh, there's a lot of pressure on central banks when inflation didn't come up to the target and they were undershooting the target. Uh, there must be some monetary um, uh, expansion that you can still do, and and you're not doing it. That uh, if you're not doing it, that must mean that you do really don't care as much uh, for the people. I, I, I'm sure that kind of argument 
could have been playing. But it's also an argument that is consistent with their mandate, right? Their mandate is maximum employment mm, sure. within price stability. So if you're not achieving price stability, means that you can do some more uh, to try and achieve maximum employment. Again, I don't think anybody saw the possibility of any downside to balance sheet expansion. It was a, it was a free tool mm. uh, which hadn't been exploited before. Why not do it now? And, you know, so long as we don't look like we're financing the government, um, we're just buying assets from the market. Um, you know, uh, let's do it. Uh, so I don't think people looked at the downsides and nobody worried about the, you know, whether there'd be costs getting out. Okay, monetary policy and financial stability. We've saved the most controversial to last. So it's it's obviously not terribly controversial to say that financial stability should be part of a central bank's mandate broadly. But should financial stability be a goal of monetary policy specifically? So here's the here's the uh, way um, many central bankers deal with this, right? Oh, absolutely. We 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 do care about financial stability, and obviously we have a whole um, rationale built up for you know how we determine monetary policy. But the twin never need meet because we have this uh, fantastic separator called supervision, uh, including prudential macro supervision, which will somehow make it uh, so that easy money never creates financial instability. So that's the, that's the separation principle. And central bankers have convinced themselves, once we have the separation principle, we have a monetary policy side that looks at monetary policy. We have a you know, financial stability board which looks at financial stability. They don't need to talk to each other. I think this is rubbish. Can you say more? I think... There's a very nice paper by Jose Luis Pedro and a bunch of co-authors, which shows that before every uh, serious financial crisis, you have a period of uh, expansionary monetary policy, interest rates coming down, and then monetary tightening, interest rates going up, and then boom, it, it, it explodes. And I think this is basically the problems are built in a period of easy money, uh, the perverse lending. I mean, no matter how well run the system, easy money makes it possible to make the kinds of loans against booming asset prices, uh, which, you know, uh, essentially become problematic down the line. And of course, the period of tightening is when, you know, the easy money disappears and, and that's when, you know, the uh, famous Warren Buffett, you see who's swimming naked mm. uh, because the tide has gone out. I think, you know, to the extent that central banks are really aggressive in the period of easy money in trying to elevate activity and, um, you know, constrained by their mandates to be uh, aggressive in withdrawing that accommodation in bad times, they put all the adjustment on the financial sector. And the financial sector is simply not uh, able to adjust in such a smooth way. Hmm. Uh, and so that's when things go boom. 
because leverage builds up in the period of easy money and withdrawing the liquidity, raising interest rates makes that leverage toxic in the period of tightening money. And that's when you realize that there are problems. So, um, you know, is this a law of history? I, I think it's sufficiently uh, um, sort of, uh, you see it, you see the pattern time and again before every crisis. Uh, and, and if you think about, you know, these famous macroprudential tools, the Bank of Spain had macroprudential tools before the uh, global financial crisis, and Spain had a rip-roaring banking crisis. So I, I think when you're pushing on the monetary accelerator, there's very little that the supervisory side can do to, to sort of offset that. I mean, we saw it in 2023, right, with the Silicon Valley Bank. I mean, what were they thinking? But more, what were the supervisors thinking? And these guys, you know, basically loaded up on longer-term debt so that they were effectively decapitalized as interest rates went up. Why didn't they do basic risk management 101? Uh, and you have to believe that, that you know, let me make a, a, a small spread. Let me pick up pennies before the road roller. Uh, and um, they got into trouble doing that. I mean, it's, we make the same mistakes again and again. We don't have to make new ones. But we, of course, we figure out new, new ways of making mistakes also. Great. Okay. So I want to push back on your argument, but, but actually just quickly before I do that, as a side note, I was wondering, um, so there was this 2012 financial sector legislative reforms commission mm -hmm. that presented the Reserve Bank of India with a report that recommended that the supervisory function should be split out from the RBI. Um, I think maybe because of like conflicts of interest and the RBI already had a lot on its plate. Um, but then this, this didn't happen under your governorship. Was that because you thought um, that financial stability should mostly be the role of the, the central bank? You know, I look, um, I thought we had more important things to do. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, I mean, I think financial stability is important, but it wasn't so much, I, I didn't think that the problem was serious conflicts of interest as not doing, the, you know, what, what a sensible supervisor should do. Uh, which means that, you know, figure out where where the um, excessive lending is happening, uh, figure out where the forbearance... Now, uh, when I was at the RBI, it wasn't so much excessive lending as, as forbearance, uh, not taking account of the mistakes that had already been made, which had to be reversed. And so my focus was on that, uh, including tallying up the actual bad loans that had been made and, and how much evergreening that was going on. And we started the process of cleaning up then. And, you know, it took five years. But by about 2019, uh, under, you know, my successes, uh, finally we had a clean banking system. Yeah. But you, you, the problem was not, um, the problem was the referees not calling the penalties. Mm that we had to change. Yeah. Yeah, that um, airing of the non-performing loans, that, that was a massive achievement. So some reasons against targeting financial stability with monetary policy. I'm sure you're aware of the cost-benefit analysis by Lars Svensson in 2017 that found that, so I mean, there's 
there's not necessarily a problem in principle with leaning against the wind, but in reality, uh, he finds that the the costs were more than uh, cleaning up after. Um, what about that analysis didn't persuade well, I, you? I would be really uh, surprised if any analysis of the global financial crisis and the subsequent political changes, uh, which, you know, leading up to today, would suggest the costs of that crisis uh, were less than the costs of somewhat more reasonable monetary policy before. Properly accounted for. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I just think crises are so dramatic, including in changing your views of of the system itself, that I think they're best avoided. Yeah. Uh, And if it means that you don't become so aggressive on monetary policy that you have more moderate changes in interest rates, I I think almost surely uh, that beats having a crisis. Uh, Yeah, you sacrifice some activity. But, I mean, so... If, I mean, we're we're still sort of have no idea how this is going to play out in the next next year or two, Uh, whether we're going to have more uh, turmoil. We we still have weak banks in the U.S., especially the small and medium-sized banks, because they've gone out on a limb in terms of of lending, et cetera, et cetera. But um, what, what did we... I mean, this is the cost-benefit analysis we have to ask uh, at some point, right? Uh, Would easier monetary policy over the last 10 years, uh, again, you have to say relative to what, but uh, if we hadn't done all the QE, would it have made that much difference? Uh, And, and, you know, um, set aside the risks of higher financial stability so much so. I mean, we've already had massive Fed intervention uh, by insuring all uninsured deposits um, in March of this year. Uh, what, what that sets in place for the future, we don't know. But, uh, you know, uh, I think more moderate, moderate I'm not saying y- you have to be really um, crazy on monetary policy. I'm saying be a little more um, be a little less aggressive on either side. Um, more moderation. Uh, maybe this Friedmanian in it <laughs> <laughs> that uh, you know don't go chasing after every 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 goal with with absolute. Press the accelerator. Press the brake. Another pushback: Doesn't a financial stability goal for monetary policy? require a central bank to have a rigorous test for identifying asset price bubbles? And is it even possible to identify bubbles ex ante? And if we, you know, if we can't even get prudential regulation right, why should we expect to get something like that right? So, look, I think it is possible to argue yourself into a, a corner here, right? Yeah, we cannot identify every bubble. Um... Are there places where we start seeing the combination of credit growth as well as asset prices uh, moving together 
this is the famous paper that uh, Philip Lowe wrote with uh, yeah. Claudio Borio. For the Bank of International Settlements. Yeah, which, which I think suggested that that was when you had more danger. Hmm. And, and again, I would say the point is not so much stopping it in its tracks, but being more wary at that point and throwing more sand in the wheels at that point, uh, certainly, um, you know, uh, slowing accommodation if you already have accommodation somewhat. Again, uh, we're not talking about monetary policy in its, you know, as, as, as the way to stop every bubble, but we're saying lean against the wind a little bit. It's not a bad idea. Okay. Next pushback. So a financial stability objective affords too much discretion. That, that, that's the claim that I'll, I'll put out there. And too much discretion, as you know, can actually undermine a central bank's independence because when bankers are bound to strict rules, they are less likely to be influenced by politicians. Yeah. Uh, I mean, again, this is one of those things in practice is different from what it looks like in theory, right? In theory, it looks like, oh, you, you with the monetary policy rule, it's, it's so clear. Well, We've seen big deviations from Taylor rules, right? Uh, so it's not as if because you're focusing only on activity, not on financial stability, that what you do is predictable and, and very clear and, and, and communicable. Uh, there's lots of variables which go into your decision on what monetary policy you set, when and how. Mm. And, and so to the extent that that's already you know, a really complicated thing. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's hard for outsiders to discern that carefully. Um, you, one, one way of looking at it is why add more complications? The other is it's already complicated. So adding more complications doesn't make it that much harder, uh, you know, to do. I mean, the reality is we never set monetary policy, any sensible central bank never sets monetary policy based on models alone. Uh, sometimes the models even are backfitted to to substantiate the position of the central bank. Why am I not doing this? Because my model says I can be a little more comfortable. But really, a lot of it is looking at really a complex set of uh, of variables and trying to decide, given this complex set of variables, where is the sort of the most cost uh, effective path of getting to my objective, mm. uh, and and so. It's it's not something that uh, that you can uh, you know uh, tie to one model or, or 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 you know be so in in that sense I think it is a complicated task and I think keeping in mind so I mean how would you bring financial stability in this is the way many people already talk about how they bring it in. Oh, yes, we're looking at activity over the medium term and inflation over the medium term. And of course, if we have a deep crisis over the medium term, there will be very little activity to speak of, and then we'll be undershooting our inflation targets. That means it comes in through the uh, inflation targeting framework itself that we need to be aware of financial stability risks building up. Right. Now, what you do in terms of monetary policy and how, do you, communic how you communicate it of course, we will have to make changes from where we are now because we completely ignore that while talking about this. And, and I think 
again, it's, it's the combination of credit liquidity and asset prices that you would start trying to say more about mm-hmm. than, uh, than just about asset prices. And, and I agree with you, um, you know, that alone would be something that would be very difficult to communicate and, and you may be wrong a lot of the time. Right. But when you see these correlation amongst these three, then you want to start thinking about it and thinking about what influence your policies have on them. So reading your work, I get the sense that you appreciate the parsimony in John Giannikopoulos' view of leverage cycles, where he has this model where an extension of credit availability basically empowers the optimists in a group of, uh, you know, in a population to set the marginal prices for an asset. Do you think that is is like a sufficient explanation of how bubbles begin or we need some kind of like deeper theory of where the demand shift happens? I, I, I think um, bubbles always have, I mean, this is the Schillerian uh, mm. view, right? There's, there's a narrative behind the bubble, right? How this thing is going to be the answer to all our dreams. And and you can't quite pinpoint how it'll be the answer, but it will. AI for now is an example, right? It's going to change the world. It's going to change everything. Ev- how everything is done, it's going to be the solution. Um, precisely how? Well, you know, look at ChatGPT Plus and Somehow wave hands and it's going to make a huge difference. Yeah. Right? Um, so I think there is usually a narrative behind that, that you know, financing the optimists. Mm-hmm. And, and so narrative plus money creates the self-reinforcing view. Oh, yes, this is the, this is the you know, the new, new thing mm-hmm. that, uh, that is going to happen. But, you know, obviously... Uh, different bubbles have different aspects uh, also that that combine with these. Yeah. Okay, here's a question I've been uh, wondering about. Uh, So if central banks are to lean against the wind, should they distinguish between debt bubbles like real estate booms and equity bubbles like the dot-com bubble and then not lean against or lean more lightly against the equity bubbles? Because there's some interesting evidence that some bubbles, usually the equity bubbles, actually help to kind of lay the infrastructure for new technology revolutions. There's a good book on this by Carlota Perez. Perez, Yeah. 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 And uh, the Perez book is a a very interesting one. Um, Look, uh, I think when we talked about this earlier, I said, look, where we can be more worried is there's a combination of leverage yeah. Uh, liquidity and uh, and asset prices coming together. And that would suggest what you just said, which is focus more on debt bubbles, debt fuel bubbles, than equity. Because equity, at one level, as you said, uh, the risk-taking, risk tolerance of equity investors may actually fuel certain kinds of investments which wouldn't be otherwise done and which may take us over a certain hump in terms of innovation and uh, and growth, uh, but the other is uh, you know typically not always. I mean, we uh, you might think these are the people with more money, and therefore can afford to to lose it uh, more than uh, perhaps uh, people who've just got into their first home mm-hmm. and uh, and find that uh, you know they're in deep distress. So so 
I think from an equity perspective uh, and from a the growth perspective you're talking about, uh, perhaps one might want to wor- worry less about equity bubbles. Um, and it may also be hard uh, for monetary policy, um, you know, uh, unless it's 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 reasonably f- uh, has reasonably f- reasonable foresight um, to do much about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that said, I would say um, you know certainly when there's a combination of debt uh, and asset prices as well as liquidity, um, it's it's important to look at it. The Reserve Bank of India, alongside the European Central Bank, is one of the few central banks in the world um, to continue to pay attention to credit growth in determining its monetary policy. What is it about the the institutional history of the RBI that makes it special in this well, regard? I don't want to com- uh, comment on 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 uh, the current um, sort of policies of the Reserve Bank. Um, when I was governor, it was one of the things we we looked at, uh, but it, it it was just a measure of activity amongst others. And and I wouldn't wasn't going to target credit growth as 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 any any of uh, I mean we were focused on inflation. Um, I think the uh, Reserve Bank in the past used to have you know five or six indicators it used to look at, and wanted a reasonable balance between all indicators, and thought that if it did a good job on all of them, that was sufficient. Uh, I was. When 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 we moved towards the inflation targeting regime, I was much more concerned that you know when we said five or six, people never knew what we were doing, and as a result, we could claim success because we achieved three out of five, and and might still be failing tremendously on inflation. So I said, let's give ourselves no room, and we are going to bring down inflation and that to not wholesale price inflation, which was the convenient focus of the Reserve Bank. Uh, a lot of wholesale prices were determined by imported goods. And, and so we could bask in low imported inflation while in fact CPI inflation, which is what the common person faced, was through the roof. Hmm. So we said we're going to bring down CPI inflation and that to not, not some sort of uh, core CPI, we're going to focus on headline because food is a big part of people's basket. And even though it's volatile, that's what they consume. So yeah, uh, we, we can look through the volatility, but we need to keep people's um, sort of uh, inflation under control. So that was why we focused on CPI inflation. I don't know if the RBI has gone back to adding more stuff in that. But uh, the inflation targeting mandate is CPI. Okay. So one last pushback on targeting financial stability with monetary policy. Um, As you pointed out, Raghu, historically, prudential regulation has been inadequate. But why isn't this just an argument for better prudential regulation? I guess you could make like Crockett's argument, which is that the effectiveness of prudential regulation is of inherently counter-cyclical, but then just that in turn, isn't that just an argument for non-cyclical prudential rules? So, so there's, a, there's a practical aspect to, to what I'm trying to say, right? Which is that uh, 
it's convenient to say, let those guys take care of it. But they've never taken care of it, maybe for the Crockett reason that in good times, it's hard to stand in the way of, uh, of, of the herd. Uh, and, um, you know, the famous uh, uh, William Chesney Martin, I think it was William Chesney Martin, take away the punch bowl when the party gets going. Uh, even for monetary policy, it's difficult, but at least there uh, you, you're controlling a tool which is a little distant uh, from the politicians. If, if, on the other hand, you put in, uh, you know, uh, borrowing uh, controls or leverage requirements which uh, hit the average borrower uh, just as uh, the economy is, is uh, rollicking, uh, I think the kind of political pushback you get is tremendous. So maybe it's for that reason we haven't seen uh, macroprudential tools used uh, really effectively. Mm. But it's also that macroprudential tools are typically only operative on the banking sector. In today's economy, where we have you know a huge array of financial sector players. Uh, as Jeremy Stein once put it, the good thing about interest rates is it gets into every crack, uh, while all this other stuff is very, very narrowly focused and may not get into every crack. So to that extent, I, I, I'm, I'm saying the practical uh, reality is you can't sort of completely ignore it and leave it to others. Right. Uh, do you abandon it? No. You try and do the best job you can on macroprudential supervision, on supervision itself, etc. But you also recognize that, you know, monetary policy cannot be jamming on the accelerator when you have a deep macroprudential problem building up. And you have to say, look, maybe I need to give those guys some help. Right. And one way is take your foot off the accelerator a little bit. To respond to Jeremy Stein's point, is the kind of stuff that lives in the cracks the same stuff that we really care about anyway? Absolutely. Okay. Because what we have done, the other thing we have done is push the risks increasingly out of the big banks Mm -hmm. into the smaller banks, into the shadow financial system, right? I mean, why are we so happy that the big banks were safe this time? Well, you know, because they're the big banks. But let's not be totally confident that the risks have disappeared. They've moved elsewhere within the system. And we need to see at the end of it when we tally the risks uh, and, the, and the losses, uh, when in fact the system is safer. Now, having an island which is totally safe uh, and a surrounding ocean full of sharks uh, may not necessarily uh, be the safest for especially if people decide to take a swim, mixing too many metaphors here. <laughs> <laughs> I follow you. If a central bank is to target financial stability with monetary policy, how should it choose between price stability and financial stability when these objectives are in tension? And assuming here that that macroprudential regulation will be yeah. ineffective. Yeah, I mean, so this is the old uh, one tool, two objectives business, right? Mm. And, you know, you always have to, you know, give a sense of the trade-offs. And as I said, I mean, one way of talking about the trade-offs as 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 being compatible is to say, look, we don't want to kill the financial uh, system uh, because that would imply, you know, much lower growth and much lower inflation than we want. And so as we're going forward, we see some risk building up in the, in the financial system. 
Uh, let's be a little careful about that. And one of the ways we are careful is uh, is we don't lower interest rates much much more. Uh, we we sort of stop here uh, at at a reasonable level. So um, I don't think uh, this is this is completely is going to lead to incoherent statements. Uh, you can very well make a statement. Chairman Powell makes a statement after every monetary policy uh, meeting. Uh, he can perfectly well articulate uh, monetary policy that uh, that is taking into account rising risks in some part of the system, which suggests that perhaps some amount of accommodation. We don't need to, even while inflation is still a little too low. Remember, this is where it's more likely to hit rather than when inflation is really high. Right. But when inflation is really low, we say, okay, we'll live with the low inflation without further accommodation. So Australia recently completed a review of our reserve bank. Um, did you hear about this? No, I haven't. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So between 2016 and 2019, the RBA's concern about high household debt levels um, and financial instability led it to not cut rates more aggressively. And this review, among many other things, effectively concluded or responded with disapproval to that approach. Um, and it recommended that the RBA should have a dual monetary policy objective of price stability and full employment with equal consideration to each, thereby omitting financial stability. Um, although financial stability is to be given a legislative basis in the RBA's mandate more broadly, but monetary policy should according to this new review, only focus on um, price stability and full employment. So given everything we've discussed, I presume you would say that that is a step in the wrong direction. Yeah, I, I, I think the um, ignoring uh, financial stability uh, is, is a mistake. Uh, I think financial instability is society, society changing. Um, and, and so if you put some probability on financial instability, I think uh, it's, it's reasonable to think that you would sacrifice some monetary room for that. So, so completely ignoring it. I think it's is a mistake. Raghu, I, I could actually talk to you for hours. I have many more questions, but I do want to be respectful of your time. So let's wrap there. But this has been an absolute privilege. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for your questions. Uh, it's always good to be uh, pushed and uh, you have to rack your, your mind to sort <laughs> of, uh, respond. So it's been a, it's been a, a good couple of hours. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. Two quick things before you go. First, for show notes and the episode transcript, go to my website, jnwpod.com. That's jnwpod.com. And finally, if you think the conversations I'm having are worth sharing, I'd be deeply grateful if you sent this episode or the show to a friend. Message it to them, email them, drop a link in a WhatsApp group, or even better, blast it out on Twitter. The primary way these conversations reach more people is through my listeners like you sharing them. Thanks again. Until next time. Ciao.